You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Thank you, Levy. Thank you for reading that. Beautifully read, brother. Beautifully read. Uh, That is where we have been focusing our attention the last six weeks, is in uh, Romans chapter 8. And I hope you've been blessed by it. I hope you've learned. I hope you've grown in your love of God, your trust in Him, um, your security and um, sense of assurance that He is for you, that you are His. Uh, that you've been adopted into his family, that he's never going to let go of you. All of this is beautiful, some of the beautiful content we've been picking up on over the last six weeks, and um, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because Paul, from now until the end of our time, the next three weeks, Paul is just throwing it into top gear. This is the most sublime stuff he writes. Um, in the entire New Testament. This is just the cream of the crop. And so I encourage you to keep, keep showing up, keep being present, keep participating. Um, really the best is yet to come. And uh, having said that, <laughs> uh, let me just reread for you uh, the first verse we're going to look at today. Verse 28, and then I've got a little something to share with you. All right, verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This is, uh, this is why we have a conviction at our church about preaching verse by verse through whole books or whole chapters of the Bible. Uh, the reason that we do that is because we believe that it's important that God sets the agenda for what we examine from week to week. And that he has written the Bible and structured it in such a way that it's, it, it works together. Works together for our good. Uh, it's so important that we keep to this, I believe, because I, I'll tell you, a couple of years ago, we had a visitor at our church and um, he picked up on this fact that we were preaching through, I forget what we were preaching through at the time, Philippians maybe. And he was sort of critical of that and in love kind of said I don't think that's the way you should do it I think that you should leave more room for the spirit than that and um, he knew that we planned sermon series two three years in advance and uh, even though I said to him you know it's always in pencil we want to leave room for God redirecting our way and he has, has done that from time to time he kind of said what you should be doing is actually from week to week you should be inquiring of God and letting the spirit lead you to whatever he wants you to say from Sunday to Sunday uh, I'm glad that we don't do that, and part of the reason I'm glad for that is that um, you don't want me coming up with uh, week to week whatever I think we should be looking at. Particularly this week, you wouldn't want that, because if it was up to me after the week that I've had and the last couple of days that I've had and the night last night that I've had, there is no way on earth that I would ever choose to speak on Romans 8 verse 28. I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have the gall to do it, to be honest. And even as I stand here, like I, I am encountering a fair amount of sort of existential angst about whether I should be in the first place because I, like Romans eight twenty eight. let me read it again. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. I mean, is that really true? Here's the thing. I believe this is true. I just don't know if I believe it. See what I mean? I believe it's true. I believe God really did say this and therefore it is true. He's incapable of deceiving us. I just don't know if I believe it right now. I don't know if I can take together in my experience all the crap stuff that's happened to me um, or been done by me over the past week and, then, and be able to say, and yet 
God is going to work all of these things together for my good. I just don't know. I just, I just don't know if I can say in all honesty that I, I'm believing that right now, even though I know it's true. And it's that kind of ambiguity, actually, that I think characterizes, if we're honest, much of our Christian life. We talked about this in the now and not yet, right? So that's a little disclaimer. That, I mean, you need to make up your own mind. It either makes me the best person to talk to you about this verse or the worst. Um, It's one of those two things. And uh, I, I trust that God is going to speak to us through his word, irrespective of how I come and, and you know, arrive um, at the pulpit this morning. Here's what kind of encourages me um, to be able to, to speak about this verse. First of all, um, you, if you're coming to the text like I am this morning, there's no way that you can just sort of blithely make this another Christian bumper sticker. Like, oh, things will work for your good. Da, 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 da. Like, there's no, you can't do that. Not when you're facing sort of crushing doubt. It forces you to come to terms with it on its terms. It also, I think, coming to it with this kind of perspective makes sense of where Paul is as he writes this. He's writing to a church that is experiencing the ambiguity of life in the first century as Christians. The church in Rome is facing all kinds of persecution. All of the images that you have in your mind about Christians being fed to lions, that was happening to them. The multiple, multiple hundreds, maybe thousands of public crucifixions That wasn't happening to the pagans, it was happening to them. And so, anyway, listen, Paul writes to people who would be asking this question themselves. I love that this jumped out at me this morning. The two instances in this whole chapter where he says, we know, reflect this kind of ambiguity. Verse 22 says... We know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. That's one thing we know for sure. The whole world is shot through with futility. The whole creation is groaning. It goes on to say we ourselves are groaning and then God himself is groaning. Groaning is characteristic of life now. And then verse 28, the other thing he knows We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. These are the things that we know. So let me just reread it. Hopefully having kind of jolted your brain into action, not to just kind of blithely swallow this as another um, another bumper stick to doctrine of Christianity all right this is this is real this is either real for you now in the midst of whatever you're going through or it's nothing so just let me reread it and let's ask the question for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose is this true And do I believe it? That all things, really all things, all things, all the things that have happened in my 40 years on this earth, all the things that have happened to you in your experience, all things, even bad things, yes, all. All things, he says, work together, uh, are being woven together by a supreme artist, work together, woven together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things. And here's a couple of things we need to get right if we're going to rightly understand this. First of all, he says, all things. 
So this is not just selective. We're going to cut out the things that, you know, would go well on a Christian calendar or a Christian mug, right? This is, this is not just nice things, but all things work together for the good of those. So it's for our good. All things work together for our good, not necessarily for our comfort, but for our good. Not necessarily for our comfort, but for our good. Now, what is our good? What is this great good that God is working towards? He explains this in verse 29. It's so that we will be conformed to the image of God's own Son. So, God's great purpose in the all things of our lives, in the all things, His great purpose is to masterfully, artfully weave all of those good things together such that our good is achieved. What is our good? Conformity to Christ. He wants me to be more like Jesus. And he's working, working, always working to that end. In all things, he's working to that end. And that I would be made more like his son. Now, here's where we bastardize this verse. We bastardize this verse when we just kind of casually throw it into the midst of somebody's very real suffering. When you come across someone who's just lost a loved one, or just received the cancer diagnosis, or has just lost their job. When you just drop this in, well, you know, all things work for good. That's when you bastardize this verse. First of all, you've ripped it out of its context. And then you've thrown it into the mix with someone who will, can only, can, can, who can only hate you for doing so and probably be turned away from the comfort that actually is there when it's ministered skillfully. All things work together for good. Now, I would love to do this experiment, and excuse me, this, uh, I just apologize ahead of time. I would love if someone, next time someone comes up to you and tries to play that card, all things work together for good, punch them <laughs> and see if their thesis holds. <laughs> and then repent because you would have just completely left the way of Jesus. This is more than just some kind of bumper sticker. This is, more, this is more than something you blithely drop into the midst of somebody's suffering. This is more than that. It's far more than that. This is more than what doesn't kill you or make you stronger. It's more than that. I kind of believe that, by the way. I kind of believe that thing about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think I just kind of intuitively, I haven't thought very deeply about it, but I kind of do believe that to be true. <laughs> we went to, um, I took the kids hiking yesterday out at Lerderdurg and we, um, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to up the ante with them um, because I want them to be like world-class hikers. I think that's a worthy thing to pursue in life. Um, I probably spend more time encouraging them in that than in their times tables, which tells you something about me. But anyway, we did do a little few times tables on the way there in the car. Just so, you know, anyway, we, when we got, I, I just, I fully believe in taking them off the, the trail. And so we did that and we spent a fair bit of time just making our way uh, alongside the river there, which for once is in full flow and it's just delightful. Um, but a couple of times along the way, um, bad stuff happened. Uh, at, at one point, India was running along with the stick that I'd given her to help get up the like the the vertical climb that we had to do um, uh, as as part of our hike. And and I don't know, the stick stuck in the ground or something, and she just went um, 
over and like she flipped over and landed uh, on her back in a bush upside down. It was quite it was quite a feat actually. I'm not sure exactly how she did it, but um, that happened. And then on the way back, I had them crossing uh, a part of the river that you probably shouldn't cross when it's in full flow. Um, and so they were having a hard time of it, but I really just wanted to, I didn't want to carry them like I had in the past. I didn't want to give them a hand. I just wanted to do it by themselves. And as a result, Judah ended up in the river um, and kind of cut up pretty bad by the, by, the, by the river rocks that he fell onto. But anyway, here's the thing. This is what I said to them in both cases. They were crying for good reason, and I want to be the dad that comforts them, I do, but I also want to be the dad that says, come on, let's keep going. And so I was erring on that side. And what I said to them was, this thing that has happened, which is not nice, this will make you a better hiker. You will be a better hiker as a result of this. And I really believe that. But is it true? I mean, can you bank on it? Can they, every time they go hiking now, know for sure, even though I axed myself on the rocks there, I'm going to be better for it? I'm going to be a better... I don't know. Like, it's not that certain. It might be true. It might not be. Maybe that was just a bad thing that happened. Maybe they'll be a worse hiker because now they'll be really scared. I don't, like, there's no guarantees. That's the difference between what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What's the difference? The difference is sovereignty. The difference is the person who's saying it and their ability to make it so. I tell them that what doesn't kill them makes them stronger. I tell them that falling over in the middle of a river will make them a better hiker, but... I've got no power to ensure it. I've got no authority to make it true. The difference between me saying that and God saying this is sovereignty. Sovereignty. Power. Unrivaled supremacy. That's the difference. So let's not put these things on the same shelf. All right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Probably true. Not on the same shelf as Romans 8, verse 28. So don't use it like that. The difference is sovereignty. God has no rivals. If God says something is true, there is nothing in the universe that can come along and contradict it or threaten it in any way. Not even my existential angst not even my kind of wrestling with ambiguity this morning even as I stand before you this can't threaten the truth of what God has said to us in this passage God is unrivaled I love it the way that my friend Adam Ramsey says it in his new book he says let's be clear when it comes to might, strength, God has no rival. Were we to play a game of contrast where I asked you to respond with the direct opposite of a word, boy, girl, dog, cat, kale, happiness, and so on. If I were to ask you what was the opposite to God, your instinct might be to respond with Satan, but you would be wrong. The opposite to Satan, that wicked fallen angel, would be another angel, another created being. The opposite to God is nothing. God has no equal. He has therefore no opposite. He has no rival. He is supremely unique and utterly supreme. Just listen to the way he says it himself. This is how he talks about himself. And there's not a, not a hint of arrogance in this. Because all of it is just simply fact. In Isaiah 46, verse 5 and then verse 9 to 10. To whom will you compare me or make me equal? Who will you measure me with so that we should be like each other? 
Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. That's who we're dealing with here. That's, that's, that's the being who's giving these guarantees, just so we're clear. That's why we can read Romans 8, 28, and even in the midst of the deepest suffering, wrestling with it as we go, we can trust that it is, in fact, true that we can in fact believe it that's why Paul can say in Romans 5 we boast in our afflictions not only that but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance endurance it produces proven character and proven character produces hope This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's why he can say that and it not just be a Jiminy Cricket thing, right? That's why he can say that and it it can be true and it can give hope to Christians for a couple of thousand years have been put to death because they are called according to his purpose. It's sovereignty that makes the difference. This passage this morning, this is where the two great attributes of God come together and kiss. The two great attributes of God, that he is great and that he is good. This is these, these two things you need to have right there firmly packed together for you to understand God himself, for you to understand anything written in the Bible. You need to understand he is great and he is good. If you just think he's great, then you know he's powerful, but he might be a bully. He might be like the, the Greek and Roman gods who just love messing with people. And if he's good, but he's not great, then uh, he's, he's benevolent. He's kind of this avuncular uncle in the sky who's hoping the best for you, but he can't do anything to help you. Don't bother praying to that God. Just wish you well. This is God's greatness and his goodness wrapped up together and written out on a page. This is, this is power and love. Now, the rest of this passage, Paul's going to, he's going to take us out of this kind of day-to-day experience of God's power and love, greatness and, and goodness. In verse 28, you know, all things, day-to-day, all things working together for good, and he's going to just spread it out from beginning to end. He's going to spread it out from eternity to eternity. This is what it looks like when you spread out the power and love, the greatness and goodness of God from eternity to eternity and then apply it to our salvation as God's people. This is what it looks like. Ready? Verse 29 to 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Hmm. Now those couple of verses are packed with dynamite and they're, you know, the, <laughs> this is really unfortunate, tragic. 
but the outcome of somebody reading publicly those couple of verses and then maybe doing some teaching on it, the outcome so often has been arguments, disagreements, church splits, fist shaking. There are a lot of words in that passage that we're going to break down and and examine. There are a lot of words there that cause people a lot of angst. So many arguments. I'm not going to get into it today. I just decided last night as I cut this down from a three-hour sermon to a, well, we'll see. Uh, I just feel, I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to do the arguments. Uh, if you're interested in the arguments, we did, I did an hour sermon on this in, on the 30th of April 2017, I think it is. You can look it up. It was in a series called You Asked For It and it's where we, everyone voted on what they wanted us to talk about and that was number two. Um, how can it be loving for God to choose some and not others or something like that? Anyway, have at it. This morning, all I want to do is look at this and see why it's good news. This is my assumption before we look at it at all. The result, the result of, of looking at this passage should be an enormous boost to our confidence in who God is and what he's done. An enormous surge in assurance that we are his and always will be. And just like some kind of eruption of praise as we sing a couple of songs once we're done. And that the arguments and the fish shaking should all just fall to the floor. That's my assumption. We'll see if it happens. Uh, But that's all I'm interested in. Why is this good news? Why are those two dynamic verses... Why are they good news for us? Here's the first reason. The first reason this is good news is because this unbreakable chain, what theologians have called down the years, the the unbreakable chain of salvation or the golden chain of salvation, this unbreakable chain is unbreakable because it's not dependent on you. This chain of salvation from foreknowledge to predestination through call and justification and glorification the reason it's unbreakable is because it's not on you if it was it would be the very very breakable and brittle chain of salvation which just isn't much fun to talk about The reason this chain is unbreakable because it is all about God's love in action. Not a description of your actions, your achievements, as much as we wish that it was. And surely this is the cause of so much of our fish shaking. We want it to be me, damn it. This is not about, well, it is about us, beautifully about us but it's not dependent on us. So let's just, I just want to look at this link by link. Let's break down the unbreakable chain, shall we? And see how it all comes together. So, verse 29a, just the first little bit, says, for those he, for those God foreknew. Who's this talking about? This is talking about the group, the group of people that God foreknew. The group of people that before there was anything, back in the time when there was only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and nothing else, back in the recesses of eternity past, God foreknew us. Those of us who are his children, those of us who have been adopted into his family, those of us who have been saved from ourselves, from sin, from Satan, those people are the people that God foreknew. What you have to understand about this is a very technical term. It's not a term that we use almost ever, maybe ever. 
But when, it, when the Bible speaks of God's foreknowledge, he's, it's speaking about more than just something he knew ahead of time. That would, that would be not very specific at all. In fact, that would be everything. Right? You just heard it from God's mouth himself in that Isaiah 46 passage. He knows everything beginning to end. So this, this is not his general, the stuff that he knew back in eternity past, because that's everything. This is the specific distinguishing way that he knows you as his child. The foreknowledge of God is his forelove. His forelove. One of my favorite people in just the entire world and history and the universe is John Stott. I just love John Stott. I want to be like John Stott. Because I, th- I think that he was a lot like Jesus. Anyway, this is what he says in his, his commentary, which I just, I've been soaking in. He says, No is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Those he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to those he foreloved. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. So this is God in eternity past looking forward into the future and seeing you, his child, and what he experiences as he sees you, his child, in the year 2021 in Caroline Springs or wherever you are right now. What he sees is someone that he loves. That's the emotion he feels in eternity past as he looks at you. Love. And it's an active Love, it's a love that does something. Sovereign, distinguishing love. It's love in action. What is the action that it gives birth to? Let's keep reading, we'll see. The action that it gives birth to. Let's do 29A and B. Uh, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So this is in response to God seeing you and his active, distinguishing, sovereign, loving of you. The, the action that it gives birth to is pre, the predestining of you. It's, it's one of these big, Christian words, it just means choosing ahead of time. So again, we're still back in eternity past. And in eternity past, before you do anything worthy of God's love or favor or grace or anything good, before sin enters into the world in the first place, before creation itself takes place, God looks at you, he looks at you with love, and he chooses you to be his. He he chooses you ahead of time. He pre-chooses you. He predestines you to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters so that you might be his brother, you might be his sister. How is it that you can call yourself the brother of Jesus, the sister of Jesus? How is it that you can count yourself as a member of God's family adopted by him? It's the result of God's foreloving of you and his action of predestining you. So listen, I would love next year for us to weave into a part of our meeting together in this building week to week. I would love us to work in a kind of sharing of testimony. Maybe, you know, once a month, someone comes up and says, here's my story. Here's why I'm a Christian. And I would love for every one of those people, even as they sort through their experience You know, I went to the Billy Graham crusade in 1956 or whatever it was, or I, you know, I went to the youth camp in 1999. What, irrespective of the this 
world experience that you have, that you would have in your mind eternity past. And the fact that if it's true that you are one of Jesus' brothers or sisters, if it's true that you're being conformed to the image of his son, right, in that, just that verse we have sanctification, conformed to the image of his son, and adoption, made one of his brothers and sisters, right? If all of that is true about you, then you need to know this. It is the direct result of God's unmerited favor, grace, and love towards you in eternity past. As far back as we can go, exercising all of our neurons, God was there loving you. Loving you. And in love, choosing you. Here's why this is such a tragedy. The reason that, that, that these kind of verses produce so much ink spilled and fists raised and angst and anger. The reason it's such a tragedy is because what we're talking about here is not some abstract theological concept. This is not the baby of John Calvin in the 16th century. This is God, and it's not just something he did, it's his love in action. This is the most beautiful thing that we could ever lay our minds on and yet it causes so much angst. It's such a tragedy. Just think about it in these terms, all right? Let's, let's take it out of the theoretical. Go back to what I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago about my sister being adopted from an orphanage, right? We don't know what happened to her parents, but she's completely left to her own devices, taken in by an orphanage and my parents adopt her and bring her into a loving, prosperous, nourishing Christian family. How would it be if looking back on that event now as a 30-something-year-old, how would it be if my, all my sister could do in response to that would be to shake her fist at my parents and say, how dare you choose me? I should have chosen you, if anything. Tragic distortion of events. She was in no state to choose her adoptive family. She had nothing. She had no resources. She didn't have the money, the enormous amount of money it cost to do it. She didn't have the brain power. She didn't have the wherewithal. She was a five-month-old orphan. She was hopeless, and in love, my parents chose her. That is a beautiful thing. I said I wasn't going to get into all these debates. I'm sorry. I... Let me just let, let the Bible speak. This is, this is in Ephesians chapter 1. This is how Paul describes the loving action of God. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, right? Conformed to the image of his son. Check, check this out. In love. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In love. We gotta keep going. Sorry, let's let's keep moving along the chain. Remember this is cumulative, so don't just Chuck that out. Keep, keep it in the back of your mind. This is, this is the, the accumulation of God's loving action from eternity past to eternity future. Let's keep going along the chain. All right, back, back at 29. Uh, 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. So, he, so here's what's going on. He, he's, he's in eternity past. He looks into the future, sees you and loves you. Sovereign, distinguishing love of God is how he knows you. And the action that that gives birth to is this pre-choosing, choosing in advance, this predestining selection of you to be saved by grace. And then now we fast forward all the way up until whenever it was that you heard the gospel. And this is the calling. Those whom he predestined, he also called. He secured your Adoption through his effectual call. This is his direct, effectual call. He calls you and you hear it and respond. This is the weird thing that happened, for those of you who can remember it or who experienced it this way, the weird thing that happened where the gospel went from just nonsense that Christians, you know, the fairy tales they believe in, to the thing that changes your life. It's the effectual call of God. There might have been many calls through many faithful people through the years. And then there was the one where God said, it's happening. You're coming home. I'm adopting you. This call happened in your real life experience. It's a thing you'll probably mention if you get up here and share your testimony with us for God's glory and our good, right? It's the effectual calling of God. This is not some vague like my kids play with the other kids in the court every day the court that we live in I love it it's like 1982 in our court it's just kids on bikes riding around playing chasey it's amazing but it's also incredibly difficult to get them back inside when it's time for dinner or bath or bed I'm reduced to standing on my front lawn like an idiot, just going, India, Judah, please come. Please. It's not an effectual call. This call of God, those whom he predestined, he also called, or back to verse 28, know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose his unshakable purpose this is God's effectual call here's the image that I have in mind I think it's a perfect image from the life of Jesus okay whenever you think whenever you read called here this is the image I want you to have whenever you think about the call on your life to become a Christian get rid of all other images and just supplant it with this one this is just ideal you got Jesus coming with his disciples and arriving too late by design to save Lazarus, one of his best friends, to save him from death, to heal him. So Lazarus has been in the tomb for three days. To quote the uh, King James Version, he stinketh. Dead, gone, kaput. Here's what happens. Look for the call. After he said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him, let him go. That's the image you should have in mind when you think about God's effectual calling on your life. Like when you became a Christian, that's what happened. We write, rewrite these stories all the time. So, someone once said, we live in the stories that we tell. It's so true. We rewrite, reframe these stories all the time. We reframe them like we reframe Instagram photos. Right? We just keep getting better and better in every shot. So that by, by the time you've been a Christian for a while, you are now the hero of your story. And so you just need to rip up that testimony, burn it with the fire of hell, 
and come back to the truth. Here's the truth. You were dead. You stinketh. You were wrapped up in cloths. That's, that was your state. And Jesus, in all of his, frankly, almost like swaggering supremacy and sovereignty, came to you and said, in a loud voice, Jeremy, come out. Come out. And you didn't wait a few minutes or hours or days. You didn't think about whether you wanted to or not. You didn't write up a little pros and cons table to figure out whether you should obey him. Or, you just came, you came out. You were dead and now you're alive. And when the king of the universe tells you to do something, you do it. That's your testimony. Our estate before God, before his effectual calling, was deadness. Death. little motivational pick-me-up this morning. It actually is, if you think about it. This is how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. You're like a zombie. He's walking, the walking dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. We're on the same boat. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, just underline that in your Bible. That's what Romans 8 is about. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. That's what the gospel is about. But God, rewrite your testimony and have that as the title. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Grace is unmerited, unlooked for, undeserving love, favor, mercy, compassion, salvation. All right, let's keep going. I just, uh, just every line, man, every line is just, there's so much to say. All right, more, more chain, more chain. Let's keep moving down, back, back up to 29. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. So he's loved you before time. He's chosen you before time. Then somewhere along the line in your experience, he calls you and you turn. You come out of the tomb. You come to him. It's irresistible. You come to him and you receive his grace. And as you believe, as you respond to his call with belief, in the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, 
then those who believe are justified by faith. Those who believe are justified by faith. I mean, that's the whole point of the whole letter. So we won't go into it because we've been over it a thousand times, but this is the point. You are justified by faith. Justification is just a legal designation. You came in dead in trespasses and sins, deserving of condemnation and eternal death. And you encounter the grace of God, his mercy, his irresistible call, and you come out from there declared righteous, justified, not guilty, set free. That's the ridiculous gospel that we believe in. Remember last time we went through this lockdown together, 2 Corinthians, we were preaching through 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think it is, about God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. Your sin is given to him and his righteousness, perfection, sinlessness is given to you. Ridiculous. Scandalous good news. Foreknown, foreloved, predestined, called, justified. And finally, the final link in verse 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Which doesn't make any sense. Either Paul is having a really bad grammar day or he's just made an incredible assertion. Because, you, you know, glorification has not yet come. Your glorification will come the day that Jesus splits the sky and himself in his glorified state comes back to us, ushers us into a new creation in which we will inherit, be given, gifted, glorified bodies, never to die or decay. Our glorified state will be not only a physical glorification, but a glorified reign. We will reign with Jesus over all creation as a kingdom of priests. This has not yet happened, my friends. Like, just look at me. Look at, look at my state. Look at the bags under my eyes. Glorification has not yet happened. And yet he said, in the unbreakable chain of past tense events, those he justified, he also glorified. Here's what's going on. I just think Paul is so confident. He is so assured. He is so certain that this chain is unbreakable that he's just put it in the past tense. It's as if it's already happened. And I, you know, from God's perspective, not bound at all by linear time, it has happened. Stone-clad guarantee. If you were foreloved by God and therefore predestined by him and therefore called by him and therefore justified by him, then you have been glorified. It is done. He talks this way elsewhere in Philippians 1.6. This is a verse that we, we quote quite a bit. He says, I'm sure of this. Really? How sure? Absolutely certain. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. 
Now, if we insert ourselves into that chain, like even if we say, well, I don't mind if God has the prehistory stuff because I wasn't around, and I don't mind if he has the future stuff because, you know, it hasn't yet happened, but if I can just get a link in there myself, if I, just, if I can just take my Play-Doh link and just insert myself in there, then all of Paul's confidence withers and dies. But... If this is God's sovereign, supreme action in history past and history future, then he can say, I'm sure of this. He who started it is going to finish it. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12. This is where Paul wants us to be left today. After all is said and done, and you sift through all I've said and chuck out all the rubbish and, and, and keep the gold, right? This is what he wants you to have. He wants you to have absolute confidence. Unbreakable, unshakable confidence and assurance that God will not leave you nor forsake you. Not ever. That he who started a good work in you will see it to completion. That he who foreknew you will also glorify you. And come what may, though the heavens fall, though the hounds of hell are released among us, come what may, God will see you safely into the glorious new creation. That's what he wants you to know. Even as you groan, even as you wrestle, he wants you to have that level of assurance. And the only outcome from all of this, right, the only next step we can take, the only thing we're left to say is verse 31. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's next week. So we'll leave it till then. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together together around your word and God willing to be encouraged by it. Father, I ask that you would forgive me and us for ever reducing this glorious passage to some kind of football to be kicked around, some kind of theological football some kind of like piece of meat to be fought over so that all that's left in the end is a bit of scrap. Oh, Lord, forgive us for that. This is too good to be reduced to something like that. For those of us who struggle with the words that have um, been written here in this passage, I struggle to understand it or struggle to accept it, struggle to see how it's your love in action, whatever. Lord, please minister to us now in your grace, in your mercy. Please warm our hearts to what you've said to us in your word. I pray that for each one of us, whether it's today or in 25 years' time, Lord, please, please grow us, conform us to the image of your Son to the extent that these would be words that are a balm to the soul and a, a pillow for the head. Help us to rest on these things. And Lord, as we, um, to varying degrees, 
continue to, to struggle in life, to groan and to question whether it can be true that all things are working for our good. Lord, in the midst of real life, please give us real assurance. Please give us unshakable hope. Please give us faith to see that if you are for us, no one can be against us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.